It's crunch time for Liz Truss. Subscribe in our flash sale to mark the announcement of the new Prime Minister and get the next 10 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £1. There's no commitment. You can cancel at any time. Hurry, though. This offer runs for this week only. Go to www.spectator.co.uk slash sale. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Britain is about to have a new prime minister. In the last decade, the UK has gone from the hyper-friendliness of the golden era under David Cameron to this much more fractious relationship, in line really with the cooling of China's relationship with the West more generally. So what will Prime Minister Truss bring with her when it comes to the UK's relationship with China? I'm joined today by Sam Hogg, who's the founder and editor of Beijing to Britain, an extensive weekly newsletter that updates subscribers on the latest flashpoints in this bilateral relationship. I'd highly recommend it to listeners. Uh, You can sign up for it just by googling Beijing to Britain. So Sam, welcome to Chinese Whispers. Let's start by considering where the outgoing Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been on China, because during his premiership, perhaps the biggest China move was the banning of Huawei from the UK 5G network. But it feels like he really had to be pressurised into that. So what do we know about his views on China? Hi, Cindy. Thank you for having me. It's a great question. So Boris Johnson presided over the end of the so-called golden era between the UK and China, where the UK actively welcomed Chinese investment into the country and sought to increase cultural ties. Johnson's personal views, which he's put out into the public record, are that he doesn't want to pitchfork away Chinese investment, and that he is a fervent cinephile. That has put him at odds with his cabinet, mm. uh, including Truss, and increasingly put him at odds with allies on the world stage. He's taken a very cakeism approach to it. In that surprise, he, surprise. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> a classic Johnsonian approach. He doesn't see the world potentially in as black and white as someone like Liz Truss would. Mm. So, I mean, let's talk about Liz Truss then. Last week's sources on her campaign said that she'd revisit the Integrator Review, which is this British government's strategy, as it were, to foreign policy that was published last year. Liz Truss said that she would revisit it to declare China a threat instead of the systemic competitor that it currently says China is. So, safe to say then she's tougher on China than Boris Johnson. I think that's exactly right. That's a natural continuation of where she has effectively set out her stall over the last year and a bit as foreign secretary. So I'm sure we'll come on to it later on, but she has this thing called a network of liberty strategy, Mm -hmm. which is a strategy she's produced where the UK engages with like-minded partners, not necessarily democracies, but like-minded partners around the world to counter authoritarian forces like Russia and China and Iran to an extent, Mm -hmm. not that anyone remembers Iran anymore in the context of this conversation. So that puts her at odds with Boris Johnson. And you could start to see that fracturing throughout the last couple of months of the Johnson administration. I suspect, as, as you've indicated there, and the fact that her team is briefing it out, there are a couple of very quick, easy wins. One mm. of those is a commitment to revisit the integrated review. And as your piece reflected on the other day, you know how much actually changes when you declare it a, an official threat? That remains to be seen. Will it unify Whitehall into mm. coming behind one single China strategy? 
who knows? Yeah, so, so I, for listeners who don't know, I wrote for the Spectator website last week, just taking a look at the implications of this move. But Sam, one thing that I pointed out was that actually that Washington had been very careful with its own language about China. You know, Anthony Blinken and Joe Biden, they're, they're not exactly China doves, yet they have said that China is a challenge rather than a threat, reserving the threat word for Russia. So, so mm. would Liz Truss be going further than DC if she did do this? She would be in that sense. And I think, by the way, that reflects a more sophisticated and deeper US-China scene than we have in the UK. You know, we can afford to lurch from declaring an official threat to declaring it a systemic challenge to declaring it a potentially useful trading partner. And there's not a huge amount of pushback across the board. People just sort of follow what's said. Putting ourselves at odds with the American administration on this issue could be a good thing. It could show that Liz Truss is willing to sort of lead the way, lead the fight in that regard. But it also could be another fractious issue when it comes to Mm. foreign affairs issues. We've already got Northern Ireland, for example, where the Biden administration is going to clearly be at odds with Mm. Liz Truss's own views. So it remains to be seen. But again, it ties back to that point you made. What actually changes when you designate a country as an official threat? Yeah, well, well, designations might not matter too much on this particular thing. But one thing that would matter is if she declares that there's a genocide happening in Xinjiang, uh, the region where the Uyghur minority in China primarily live. Sam, she has made it known, or her camp, or sources close to her, or allies close to trust, have, have made it known that she believes that there is a genocide happening in Xinjiang. And I'll just read this part from a Times report from last year, which is about this row that she had with Caroline Wilson, a woman in Beijing. And the Times reported, according to an ally of trust, Caroline Wilson ended their discussion by asking why the UK couldn't treat China like we treat the French. According to the source, trust said, because the French aren't committing genocide. So a lot of questions around that. First of all, is she going to declare genocide then once she becomes prime minister? It's a great question. I suspect probably not. To do so would really compel the UK to follow through a series of internationally recognised obligations. You know, we're assigning to the UN Genocide Convention we're assigned to a variety of other things that mean we have to take active measures to stop genocide taking place if right. we believe genocide so is legally, taking place. It has legal force. It has legal repercussions. Right. Okay. Uh, and the Americans know that. They've, they've done it, but they've not followed through with the legal obligations that are put upon them to the full extent they should have. Again, please do consult a genocide lawyer on this. I am not going to be able to offer you particularly strong advice on this issue. But my understanding, as it were, and as someone who worked on the genocide amendment to the trade bill last year, is that when you officially recognize genocide is taking place, that puts an onus on the country that has done so to actively try and stop that. Mm. Using a variety of means, that could include sanctions, for example. Mm. With all that in mind, one can see why it's a very useful campaign pledge, but a very difficult policy to carry out once in in power. And I think if there was enough pressure from the backbenches and enough interest in making it a, you said this, why aren't you doing this Mm. issue, then we could see some trouble here. But if Truss and her team have managed to effectively nullify that caucus of China skeptic MPs by giving them government positions or by taking a more strongly worded approach to China, that could effectively cut that issue out before it becomes any bigger. Yeah, and, and I want to talk to you about the backbench MPs and those caucuses in a little while as well. But just staying on the genocide issue, you know, you, you say that, that you would have obligations to try to stop that. But obviously, it's a crime against humanity. Mm-mm. 
At the same time, it is also difficult to see how you could justify doing trade with a genocidal regime. And just on the question of trade, you know, you don't think that she will declare that. But do we know what are the areas that she thinks is okay to have economic dialogue with China on? Because that was one of the attack points against her rival, Rishi Sunak, that he allowed the Treasury to continue the economic dialogue with China even as late as this year. So does she not believe in that? Or what is it that she believes in when it comes to the trading relationship? Sure. So... Truss's view of the trading relationship, from what we can gather from public comment, is that the key thing is that the UK does not become strategically dependent on China and economically mm. dependent too. Those are tied together in the mind of the Truss team and the Truss administration to go forward. In terms of what key areas we could collaborate on, that's a million dollar question, actually a multi-million pound question in many industries, because Truss has given no real insight as to why, where she views mm. good trade. She's been very clear on where China has economically taken advantage, you know, be that at a top level at the WTO, the World Trade Organization, or down to things like IP theft. But she hasn't really indicated and hasn't needed to indicate where she thinks the UK can have financial dialogue with with China. You know, the fact that, as you raised there, Rishi Sunak was chastised for encouraging the economic financial dialogue between China and JETCO. That's part of his job as chancellor. But Truss hasn't had to indicate where she thinks mm-hmm. there'd be a useful area to talk financially. Yeah, so, so that would be one thing that would be very interesting to see how she fleshes it out. One concern that I have about Liz Truss's approach to China is that it often seems quite performative. So, for example, you look at that leak from the Trust camp about the row with Caroline Wilson that I've just talked about. I've also written about the Great Britain China Centre, which you know about, Sam, but for listeners, it's this arm's length body of the Foreign Office set up in 1974. And basically, one of its functions is to increase what civil servants call China capability in Westminster, i.e. talking to MPs, civil servants about China and not just, you know, the good stuff, also the bad stuff. You know, we've been on courses where they've talked about Xinjiang and Mm -hmm. Hong Kong, all of these issues that the Chinese embassy would prefer they didn't talk about. Nevertheless, they do have relations with the Chinese embassy. And I've heard from the trust camp that that is a reason why that centre has been defunded in one of Truss's final acts as foreign secretary. Now, that strikes me as an own goal. It strikes me that at this moment in time, we need to know more about China rather than less. And even Tom Tuchenhout, who is you know a key China hawk in parliament, has written to protest about it. So it's this kind of move that makes it feel like you know Truss isn't thinking things through in terms of a constructive way forward rather than just saying, if it's Chinese, let's shut it down, even though the GBCC wasn't actually Chinese. Am I being unfair here? So I share your concerns on the GBCC. I think that's an incredibly short-sighted tactical victory in that it wins support from some China skeptic camps. But, you know, as you point out, Tom Tugendhat isn't backing that as an ideal choice. And I think in this the long-term sort of strategic vision, it's incredibly short-sighted. You need to build up a knowledge of China and track to diplomacy, which is what the GBCC also undertakes, is an essential part of that. Can you explain what that means? Sure. So my understanding of track to diplomacy is it's sort of back-channel diplomacy, not always in the limelight, and it allows people to have slightly more open dialogue, which is clearly an essential part of steering away from pretty horrific outcomes. In terms of Liz Truss's approach to the China strategy, you know, one of the things that's been thrown around is she takes a headlines first, policy uh, second approach to this sort of stuff. And that's quite clear. You know, if you're going to cut the GBCC, what are you replacing it with? Mm. If nothing at all, why not? Can you explain why not? If you can't explain why not, then the logical conclusion is you need to be able to sit down and, and justify that sort of cut. 
And, you know, as you pointed out again in that piece, it's not a huge amount of money. They're not, it's not 15 billion pounds a year that's costing to keep this place open. We have so few avenues. Yeah, it's half a million. Exactly. Half a million pounds. I mean, that is a preposterous <laughs> amount of money to consider as an individual. But as a government, you know, what is, what is that? Nothing at all. So there are a lot of puzzling decisions. And I think you're, you're not unfair to criticize her on that particular point. As prime minister... She will have to be able to substantiate mm. these sort of things. You know, to go back to a point we slightly touched on earlier about hawkish language, when she discusses things like Taiwan, you can't really take the Biden approach of saying, you know, we're going to stand with Taiwan and then your department backtracks for you, mm. which he's done a couple of times now. But Trust has said, you know, we're going to arm Taiwan and then pressed by media, she dithers and dallas and doesn't quite understand what she's talking about or comes across as not understanding mm. fully what she's trying to say. And that will not cut it going forward. Mm. So, well, let's look at going forward then, because on the economic front, The Spectator has reported about the economists that she's got around her, these three trusketeers, we call them, that basically flesh out her energy policy. <laughs> I'm glad you're enjoying that, Sam. That is a criminal name, three trusketeers. <laughs> Are there going to be an equivalent committee of experts for her China policy, or even not just a committee, but you know, who will be informing the details, because she will be very, very busy? She will be very busy. And I think this morning the Times reported that John Bew, who was Boris Johnson's foreign affairs advisor, helped craft the integrated review that you mm. mentioned earlier on, is going to be carrying on into okay. the Trust Administration. She will have people around her. You know, if you look at people like IPAC, the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, they have liaise with sort of trust, not directly in a one-on-one capacity, but people like Ian Duncan Smith, who co-chairs mm. IPAC in the UK, are a close ally of trust. They should potentially have a voice more represented now in a, in a trust government than they did under Johnson's. And bringing people like Tom Tugendhat into government as well should booster her sort of depth when it comes to understanding the China conundrum, if you will, or the China challenge. She'll also be able to reflect on a huge amount of civil service might now that she is prime minister, mm. which she did have access to as foreign secretary, but now she can set the direction herself. She can set when she wants briefings. Mm. She can set who's giving her the briefings. In terms of her special advisors, I'm not sure we've got a uh, three trusketeers type situation yet, but that could all change, you know, as you touch on earlier on. Truss's immediate focus is the sort of twin tigers of soaring inflation and crippling energy prices. Foreign policy has faded into the background yeah. and one suspects that won't come up in the near future. Yeah, well, when it comes to the Foreign Office, I have to say I'm a bit sceptical about how much civil service might there is. I mean, obviously, you know, as an institution, it is, has served us relatively well throughout the last few hundred years. But, you know, there are also reports that only 14 civil servants a year are being trained in Mandarin in the Foreign Office. It's a shocking, <laughs> a shocking yeah. amount of a lack of expertise, I personally think. When it comes to those twin tigers that you're talking about then... If she doesn't deliver on the hawkishness that she has talked with so far on China, you alluded to earlier that there could be problems on the backbenches. So Mm. Ian Duncan Smith is someone who, at the time of recording, she hasn't set her cabinet yet. We don't think he's going to be a cabinet minister. So is it people like that, even though they have supported her so far? You know, could they be the kind of hardline Brexiteers kind of vibe where they are trying to push her to go ever more strong worded? But once she's got the keys to Downing Street, she actually will want to mellow out a little bit more. So could they cause her trouble on the backbenches? Yeah, they definitely could. She'll have a honeymoon period when she gets in. It won't be that long, but she'll have one. But she's made a series of political contracts with various backbenches about how hawkish she's going to be towards China. And each of those backbenches will have a limited amount of patience mm. before they start questioning why she's not doing what she said she would do. You know, as we discussed earlier on, the genocide 
thing could be a significant issue if they so choose to make it. But there are more granular issues, things like Hike Vision, the Chinese mm. surveillance company that produces cameras used widely throughout the UK. That's been flagged over the last year and a half multiple times by backbench MPs as something they want movement on. Mm. And there is legislation coming down the line which will have amendments that cover supply chain bits and pieces that should be able to help the government remove Hike Vision if they wanted to. But if the feeling starts to set in that trust is you know, gone for the headlines and actually followed through with little policy, then you could have people like, say, Ian Duncan Smith, Nozgani, who sits in the Business Select Committee. Mm. Labour are always happy to come on board for a bit of government bashing as the Lib Dems, <laughs> you know, as they rightfully should, that is their job. But it will be interesting to see if Truss has managed to nullify enough of the China Hawk camp from the backbenches, which, you know, by the way, is not necessarily we're united by being China skeptics. We all have a skeptical view of China and we want varying things to take place and to happen. Mm. Some of those sit in the China research group, like Alicia Kearns, the 2019er, and some of them sit under the IPAC banner, like Sir Ian Duncan Smith. And between them, they have very differing views of what they want trust to do. So it's going to be difficult for her to keep all of those people in check and satisfied. Mm. But I don't know in terms of timelines how quickly we'll see some of that movement. Yeah. You, you've already mentioned the China Research Group and IPAC. And for people who are luckily not in our world of China, UK China policy, please explain what those caucuses are. Absolutely. Yeah. So the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, which is IPAC, They were both co-founded, actually, beginning of 2020. IPAC sits across many governments throughout the world. It has many parliamentarians and government officials. Actually, not government officials, but political officials Mm. within it. And in the UK, it's chaired by Sir Ian Duncan Smith, the former Conservative leader, and Baroness Helena Kennedy, Mm. who's obviously a peer. And it, it has people from every single party in the UK are its members. So Conservative, Labour, Liberal Democrats, SNP. The China Research Group was founded by Tom Tugendhat and Neil O'Brien, both Conservative MPs. Neil would eventually go into government. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom remained on the backbench. He's also chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And that was founded around the same time as IPAC, and it's just formed of Conservative MPs. Now, IPAC would view its role, I think, more as an advocating or a lobbying group that advocates for a very particular cause, whereas the China Research Group would paint itself potentially more as an educational body. Mm-hmm. It was about responding to the increased skepticism among among conservative MPs on things like Huawei. They both have a a lot of influence within parliament. IPAC has a global footprint. That's the big difference. And Sam, as you mentioned, hike vision is one of those issues that is not often in the headlines. There are other issues outside of Xinjiang and outside of Hong Kong that are concerning and should be concerning for the British government when it comes to our relationship with China. So what are some of those other issues like hike vision that, you know, List Trust will have to think about? Yeah, so... There are a whole number of them. One of them that's been raised repeatedly by some very interesting voices in this scene are things like the Internet of Things, the small components that make up everyday items. People like Charlie Parton have Mm -hmm. been raising that more and more. That's one of those headaches that you tackle now and you can deal with it. But if you leave it for another year, two years, five years, you've got a significant issue down down the road. Concerns over a similar kind of Huawei issue where we're relying on Chinese tech? That's exactly right. That has been typified. And I think a lot of these issues stem from the thing that haunts many policymakers in the Western world, which is a potential Chinese invasion or economic blockade of Taiwan. Mm. You know, we talk about semiconductors as the sort of central driving force for the next hundred years in terms of how governments and societies operate. And the UK, like many governments around the world, has had to try and work out how much of its supply chain is at risk to the semiconductor industry being effectively based in Taiwan. And that, that filters down the way. Other issues that I've seen 
parliamentarians raised before, which could come back onto the agenda with more aggression, are things like BGI Group, which is a genomics firm. Um, And you've seen some MPs like the Liberal Democrats, Alistair Carmichael, raise the fact that BGI Group, this big, huge Chinese genomics firm, which I think is blacklisted by the American administration, Mm. is still operating throughout the UK. Right. So is that like a 23andMe kind of thing, but run by the Chinese? Exactly. And so that taps into a base concern, which many MPs have. And you see it actually with TikTok as well, which is the idea of data, and in that case, genetic data, Mm. being taken from the British and sent to the Chinese to really simplify it down. And once you've got that concern there, you can build and grow. And that touched on TikTok as well, raised during the campaign Mm. uh, election. She said she would crack down on it. She didn't say what, what that meant. Exactly. And, you know, that, that goes back to the point earlier on. It's right. very easy to say, I'm going to crack down on this and then not have to show how that would, would actually come into effect. But there's a potential executive order in America, which Trust may be watching, maybe mm-hmm. keeping a close eye on to see how the Americans do it. In the UK, it's unclear. You know, the, TikTok was mentioned last year in a business select committee report as a company that they were worried about. And it's, it's continuing to sort of bug MPs. They don't think it's been taken seriously enough. Mm. The China skeptic MPs had to complain to Parliament's Speaker of the House when Parliament created its own TikTok account. <laughs> so there are lots of these sort of issues that pop up every now and then. I would like to say there's a strategic theme yeah. that runs through all of them, but actually it's very episodic. Well, strategic is the key word here because... I have heard of a mythical China strategy that is meant to have come out after the integrated review. A, Sam, tell us what a China strategy would be doing. And B, is it coming? (laughs) (laughs) So I'll start with B. I have no idea. And go on to A. The China strategy, as it's been pitched to me by maybe a million different civil servants, officials, etc., etc., it really depends who you ask. Okay. So Liz Truss was taken in front of the Foreign Affairs Committee a couple of months ago, and she was asked point blank by an MP... What is the China strategy? Where is it? And she said, you know, what China strategy? Actually, I think we can hear it now. So why is the China strategy being delayed? Um, I didn't know there was a... <laughs> Not, sorry, could you elaborate on... Well, it's usually published in... Which was, I understand, due to be published um, imminently. I'm afraid that we... <laughs> We have, um, we clearly, the government has regular internal discussions Mm. about China. So you can see there's confusion even at the top there. And further on in the committee hearing, Alicia Kern said that actually it's probably the case that any sort of China strategy hasn't come onto your desk yet because you're at the top. It might Mm. be still being worked on by civil servants. The idea behind the China strategy, if it exists and as it exists, is to bring together departments thinking okay. towards China. Because right now, if you are in the Treasury, you have a very different view of what the UK's approach sure. to China is than yeah. if you're in the Foreign Office or the MOD, the Ministry of Defence. And that has persisted throughout the Johnson era. Certainly a document of sorts arrived at one point on Boris Johnson's desk, but whether that was acted on remains another great mystery from that administration's <laughs> time. So watch this space. We could see something. It could be a very easy trust win, but who knows? Yeah, and we will find out a lot of the answers to these questions very, very soon. She's got a lot on her plate, but she will also be going to the G20 summit in November in Bali in Indonesia. And allegedly Xi Jinping is planning on going as well. So maybe we'll see her sit down and give Xi a telling off Mm. after she has sat down and called out Putin as well, because Mm -hmm. he's also going to be there. Mm -hmm. So very exciting times coming up ahead. Indeed, a busy, a busy gathering. (laughs) Sam, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. And, and tell us about your newsletter as well, because I have had so much information on what we've talked about today from the newsletter. So where can people find it? What is it about? 
Sure, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I produce a weekly briefing on UK-China relations, specifically about how the UK is talking about China. That's called Beijing to Britain, and it can be found at www.beijingtobritain.com, and it is free for all government and Whitehall accounts. So do sign up. But even if you're not, you can even pay. Even if you're not, you can pay a tenner a month. Which I think is absolutely worth it. Thank so you. Sam, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And if you enjoy this podcast, we have a new Chinese Whispers newsletter coming soon. So if you want to sign up to that, which will just be an email version of everything you love about Chinese Whispers, the podcast, then you can go to spectator.co.uk forward slash whispers to sign up and it will be coming soon. <laughs>